All right, everyone, come on in. Let's grab a seat and get started. Well, good morning and welcome to Equipping Hour. We are looking at what the Bible says about gender and sexuality. Uh, if you weren't with us uh, last week, we began this study and we're looking at uh, what has become really the hot button topic of our day in our culture. It was really homosexuality and same-sex attraction, and that has sort of quickly shifted to a conversation about gender, and although those are very interrelated, as we'll see later in our study, uh, really the, the gender conversation has become front and center in this whole, uh, in this whole conversation in our culture and world. Um, it, so if you didn't catch us uh, last week, those are, that video is online if you would like to watch that. Um, it might be helpful. Uh, so we're starting in the, sort of in the middle. And last week I told you I had 44 slides and I made it through 27 of them. So I've course corrected today and I have 64 slides. So we're going the wrong direction. And this is why we have the makeup week um, to uh, catch up at the end. So this is the plan, just to give you my flow of thought and what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, last week, what I wanted to look at was this idea of marriage as a metaphor, uh, more than a metaphor, looking at what it means to be human, gendered, and then married. We looked at the first two of those. So we started the second one, and we really, we want to do a little bit more work talking about this issue of gender, because it's really helpful and it's foundational to what we want to say the rest of our time uh, looking at this uh, this topic. So that's what we did and then we didn't really talk too much about uh, the marriage piece of it so that will be uh, today and then we'll start to get into these other concepts of sin and shame, pornography, and attraction. We probably won't make it all the way there uh, today so most of that will be pushed um, to next week um, is the plan. So I wanted to take a moment uh, in case you weren't here last week and uh, also you know teachers teachers repeat themselves and this is somewhat by design um, because a few things. One it usually takes more than one pass to get the information. Um, I know it does for me. I'll read something in a book and then I come back and read it in another book later. I'm like Ah, I get it now. And so uh, it does take more than one pass uh, to get information typically. And then the other thing is at a church, just reality is not everybody's here every week. We have visitors coming and going, you travel. And so um, a little bit of this will be rehashing and catching us back up. Um, but I think it's so foundational and it's framework uh, for us to help, uh, to, to help us think rightly. So how did we get here is one of the big questions that we're trying to understand. And this is the fundamental question behind Carl Truman's book, uh, Strange New World. I would encourage you as we're working through this, uh, take, a, take a peek at some of the books on the back table. We've tried to grab some of the best resources um, for this topic that we can find. I think this is one of the better ones, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. Um, somebody was asking me last week, what's the best single volume if you're not like looking to build a whole library on this? topic, but just want to get your arms around what's going on. I would actually recommend this one, uh, God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew Walker. I think it does the best job of the big picture um, of laying out what's going on with this whole conversation. So a number of other resources. So Truman's book, um, this, he's trying to answer the question, um, what does, how does this make sense uh, for someone to identify as a gender that they were not born with? How does this make sense? Um, how do you pull that together? And so he's really written this book, and this is a condensed version of a much, much larger book that uh, Truman wrote uh, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, so this is the version for mortals, Strange New World, 
Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is a little bit more academic, uh, larger tome. And one of Truman's points as he walks through this is this rise of individuality. And I think this becomes very, very important and key to understanding how we got in the situation that we're in today. And this rise of individuality, it not only explains gender, it also explains church, it explains um, belief systems, it explains a lot of things about our culture and life, this rise of individuality. And we mentioned this a little bit last week, but if you look around the world today, um, institutions used to be viewed as something that was formative for you to send you off into society, right? So you go to the institution, you learn the proper characters, values, skills that you need in order to go be a productive member of society. That's sort of changed now. Now you go to the institution to create a platform for yourself to be the authentic you. And I was, I was told just this last week about a uh, new recruiting uh, technique in the Navy. Uh, Andrew was telling me about this. Um, an influencer, uh, TikTok, I believe it was. Andrew, is that correct? Um, influencer on TikTok who's using that platform to recruit um, in a non-binary, trans, uh, sort of flamboyant way. Hey, come be a part of the Navy and you can, you know, you can be like me. And so the interesting thing about that is the Navy is now viewed at least through that particular lens in that particular circumstance, as a platform to make you the best you rather than the old army logo or slogan that we all knew and understood, be all that you can be. Um, it, it's, it's now turned to, it's all about me and this is my platform rather than this is going to form me into the, the person that I need to be. And so that's shifted I follow sports. A lot of you guys are sports people. I think we're seeing a huge rise in this, in the NIL movement, name, image, and likeness. When that got changed a few years ago, um, used to, if you, were going, if you were being recruited by Alabama, let's say, Roll Tide, you're being recruited, and you would come, and Bear Bryant was famous. It's, it's not the name on the back of the jersey. It's the name on the front of the jersey. It's all about the institution. What can I do for the team? If you're being recruited now and you're a five-star athlete, you walk in, they've already got banners created with your name. They're, they're using this name, image, and likeness uh, sort of uh, as a selling point. You're, you're buying your players in a legal sort of way now. Uh, you know, underhand deals have been part of the deal for a long time. So all of this to say, there's this, this rise of individuality, and I think this is, this is endemic in the church as well. So we have this rise of what's called the nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S. These are people who on official surveys are now identifying themselves as no religious affiliation. And I think this also is a product of individualism. And it's a just me and God sort of idea. If you guys know who Josh Turner is, bless you. Just me and God. And I think there's this huge rise of individuality. So... This, uh, these people, um, they're called SBNRs, spiritual but not religious, uh, and you'll hear more and more about this. And so you have people that are leaving the church officially and would identify themselves as not church-going institutional people, but they're not turning to atheism outright, and that's one of the interesting pieces of all this. And so you have many, many people who would say, we are spiritual but not religious. And I imagine you've had conversations like that. Um, this is not unique to whatever little circle you live in. This is on the rise in a major, major sort of way. And so we take all of these, this, this rise of individualism, and then we're going we're gonna to look at how that applies to gender in just a moment here. Um, because you are unique. You are you. And there's only one you in the world. And so that produces 
with things like what we're gonna see in just a moment, this gender unicorn sort of idea. I wanted to follow up, uh, so that's intro, how we got here in big picture sort of way. I wanna follow up on a couple of questions that came up last week. Um, I believe it was Dave asked about gender dysphoria and suicidality, and I wanted to follow up on that. And I'd made the point that the, the, the question was asked last week, what about this argument that we're being told, you either let your kid transition or they're gonna commit suicide. So what, what would you rather have? Would you rather have your child transition or would you rather them be dead? Because those are your options. And it's presented to us in this way. And it's presented to us as a binary. Um, and so I've, I've used that term a lot uh, just to make sure we're talking. Uh, binary comes from the coding world uh, where everything codes in a one or a zero. All right, so binary is a one or a zero. It's an it's a either or. Um, it's a black or white type of thing. And so you're presented with this binary of do you want your kid to transition or do you want them to commit suicide if they're experiencing gender dysphoria. And there's really, it's really a myth. Um, here's, there was one study that I found really helpful. This was from the American College of Pediatricians. Uh, their summary, there is no persuasive evidence that gender transition reduces gender dysphoric children's likelihood of killing themselves. And this is a pretty intense study, and it is here. I'm glad to send any of you these slides and link if you would like that. So a group of physicians has gotten together, and they wrote this uh, particular paper, and they, uh, they interact with the question we're interacting with. Why would parents allow a gender-confused child to undergo these dangerous medical interventions? In many cases, the answer is untruce and emotional blackmail. If you don't let me do this, I'll kill myself, they hear from their child. The threat of suicide is then reinforced by members of the transgender industry, transgender industry. Would you rather have a live son or a dead daughter? And so it goes on like that. And so they go on to list uh, some hard data, uh, a bunch of studies that have been done that uh, we, won't, we won't go into all of these, but you know, in short, they're not considering all the factors that we have, and it's just a false binary that's being presented to us. Um, in reality, what you have, people that are exper experiencing genuine, true gender dysphoria. Now, remember, dysphoria is this feeling of angst and, and um, d just this disconnect between your body um, what you believe and, and your identity. Um, you're experiencing this angst because you believe there's a disconnect. Um, you believe that you were born in the wrong body, as it were. And so it's, that's gender dysphoria. And so they would say that those who are experiencing uh, gender dysphoria, um, they, are, they are troubled individuals. They, they, have, they have significant problems that need to be dealt with and can be dealt with. And one of the arguments that these people are making is they're not taking into account all the other variables and factors that come into play. Um, so they need help, and there is help available. The only answer it, that we're presented with is you must let them transition. Um, that's not the only answer. And in fact, that might not make the situation any better. In fact, it could, in many cases, it's being shown now, could make it worse. Um, this transitioning, detransitioning movement that you'll hear a little bit about if you look into this. You can't truly undo a surgery once a surgery has happened. Um, anybody in here that's had some sort of surgery before, you know that you can't, it's not a car part, like you can't pop one wheel off and put another one on. Um, you never really go back to exactly the way it was um, once you transition. And this is particularly true in these surgeries that are happening. So that is, that is um, unfortunately a myth and it's being told to us as if it were fact. 
Um, I think this is really a social contagion at work and the, the people who are talking about this and transitioning, they're hailed as heroes, they're patted on the back, they're given platforms to speak, and I think it's creating a social contagion type of thing. We're seeing this especially with uh, kids. This one's interesting. Um, I want to show you this because this is a, a, a Reuters article, and they talk about the rise of gender dysphoria. And so I believe the question was asked last week about ages and gender transition and dysphoria, things like that. This one's very interesting. Now, they are, they are all in on this movement. So, putting numbers on the rise in children seeking gender care, and you can tell immediately by the vocabulary that it's gender care. And they talk about uh, gender affirming surgery rather than gender change uh, surgery, it's gender affirming. So, remember, the individual, you're determining your gender, and now you're bringing your body into alignment with your gender that you already are on the inside rather than the other way around, rather than some sort of a, a treatment or plan counseling to help you understand and embrace your body, you have to change the body. And so which one wins? That's one of the fundamental questions. Uh, when you have someone who's experiencing genuine dysphoria, I don't believe that my gender, who I am, my identity matches my body, which one do you change? Um, and so the prevailing attitude of the day is that, well, you have to change the body rather than treating the person. And it's a, it's a huge problem, I think. Um, so this is, this is interesting. Um, again, keep in mind this social contagion idea. Is that big enough to read? Yeah. Uh, so new diagnosis in the United States of patients six to 17. So we're talking pre-puberty um, into, uh, into most people at 17 or completed with puberty. So 15,000, 18,000, 21, 24, and then look at the jump. Um, to 21, which is when the latest stats are available. Um, this is uh, people, youths who, youths who are experiencing gender dysphoria. Uh, this is just a sample of some states. Uh, so I think they just kind of picked at random some of the ones that have the steepest uh, climb from state to state. And so there's a couple of different ways that you could, of course, understand this. One, and on the gender-affirming side of this, you would say, hey, see, we're finally making this conversation acceptable, and so therefore you have all of these people who are already experiencing this, and now they're comfortable and free to, to seek out help, right? You see all this? This is really good news um, because these people feel free. Another side would argue that what we're actually doing is presenting people with a view and an option that's not helping them. Um, it's a social contagion, and so they're sort of catching this uh, from their society, and in fact, we're presenting them with, a, with wrong ideas um, about what gender actually is, and I would side with that. So it's on the rise, majorly on the rise. Uh, rise of puberty blockers, uh, six, and you can see the stats, uh, 633 in 2017, all the way down to 1390, those who are uh, gender dysphoria and have initiated puberty blocking treatment. Uh, so 17 to 21. Um, these numbers aren't huge, but the rise is huge. And that's what concerns us um, if these numbers keep going. So we're talking, you know, more than 100% um, increase. Yep. Oh, yeah, you're right. I think if that's true, it's not Yeah, 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 you're right. Um, you're right. And I think that's the only, that it was in partnership with Komodo Health uh, with Medicaid. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's a good, that's a good point. Uh, 
Right. Right. Yeah, you <laughs> punt the issue for a while. Yeah. Yeah, so this one is uh, with prior gender dysphoria diagnosis, so it, I think it is specific to dealing with gender dysphoria, but yeah, you're right, that can be. Um, and then the, a couple others here. Uh, so this again shows the rise, uh, so hormone therapy. Uh, patients age 6 to 17, so you have 1,900 increased to 4,200. So again, we're uh, doubling, more than doubling um, in just a few short years. And you know, my question is trajectory. Um, the, this may be a relatively small, both sample size and then relatively small number of people at this point, but trajectory-wise, like what are we talking about? Because it is a small percentage of the people, population right now, uh, that are experiencing this and going, uh, going through these types of treatments. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. So these are uh, patients undergoing mastectomy uh, with a prior gender dysphoria diagnosis. So between ages of 13 and 17, not a huge rise here uh, in terms of total numbers, but still, um, and again, uh, surgeries, you can't reverse surgery completely, right? Uh, once, you, once you start cutting and taking parts off and adding parts, um, it will never actually completely be the same again. Um, and we all know that. Um, and we all know that this is true. So that's, uh, that's an interesting, interesting thing. And again, this, this new site is not putting this in a negative light. It's saying we're creating now a platform for these poor people to speak um, because they've been, they've been afraid to speak, um, to speak about these issues. So it, it's very concerning, um, and I think part of what we have to do as Christians, as Christians, and in, in you're going to be bumping into people who are experiencing this, walking through this, we, we need to create a place where they can have these conversations in a kind, honest, intelligent, loving, compassionate sort of way. Um, if our first reaction is, well, that's stupid, you, you, you're just not getting anywhere with that conversation, so we got to do better. Um, we got to have reasonable, good conversations about this stuff, which is part of the reason why we're going through um, this today. Yep, Mike. Yep. You know, I don't. No. Um, so, I don't. I don't have all the hard data on that. Uh, where was I reading about that? I think it was in Greg Allison's book. Um, the vast majority that are experiencing this, it is between the ages of 13 and 17. Puberty is the most confusing time in life, right? Uh, when you're going through those, those stages. Um, so I don't know, it's far less, you know, the graph turns down uh, people that transition after, after that stage. It happens. Um, it happens, adults do transition uh, later. But I think we're gonna see it more and more and people that have maybe, maybe in the back of their minds have been like toying with this idea. Um, in generations past, they would have just, because it wasn't socially acceptable uh, thing to do, I think you're going to see more and more of this um, at the younger ages. It's, it's almost an the alarm, but it, it almost is inevitable at this point, um, unless, you know, some things change in culturally how we're thinking about this stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. And people say, well, why are you Christians all, you know, wound up about this issue? I'm like, has anybody turned on the TV lately? Like, where, where do you not see this? Like, this is the issue. 
And so, of course, Christians need to address the issue because it's the issue that everybody is talking about. Uh, and so I don't, I don't apologize for us addressing it and, and speaking to the issue. I think we should. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, you're right. Bruce Jenner. Yeah. No, that, that, that was one of, the, one of the sparks. You know, in every movement, there's, there's sort of this building momentum uh, that's kind of happening. You know, what happens in the academy, and then it eventually filters down in, in theological terms. It filters down into, you know, the, the thinkers, theologians, and it filters its way down into the pastors, and it filters its way down into the pew, uh, into the, the people. And so I think these things that kind of start in theory, you know, eventually work their way down. And then at the common level, there's typically a spark of some sort or, or a series of kind of sparks that light this fire that, that takes off. And that's true of anything. And so I think, I think the Bruce Jenner situation was one of those that, uh, that really sparked this thing um, into, into high gear. I, I think that's certainly true. And I think with Jenner's situation, uh, because he was such a man's man, um, I think is what helped to create, you know, Olympian, decathlon, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, there's this complete change, um, you know, of persona. And, and so I, I do think that was a big issue. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about how we got here. I reviewed this with you last week. Um, we have this fact value division, and so facts and values are separated out. God gets relevated to the top tier. Uh, he's just a value. It's not like science. And so facts go on the bottom, and this was Schaefer's uh, sort of take on how we think about the world. Nancy Piercy developed this further in her, in her books, uh, fact, Division of Fact and Value. You have science on the bottom. God is a value goes on top. So now you have sex on the bottom, biological sex, and gender goes on the top, though, and they, they really don't have to have anything to do with each other. If they do... Then, they, then you are what's called cisgendered. Uh, you're, you match uh, is in terms of your biology and your identity. If they don't, um, you're trans. And so you, that's normative today. So when, when gender is separated from biology, it really leads to limitless possibilities. And so you're no longer stuck in a binary. And again, I'm using that term a lot. Um, it's a one or a zero. It's a, it's a yes or a no. You're no longer stuck in a binary. And so then you have the creation of things like this uh, to help you figure out your gender. Um, these, are, these are actual things. Uh, these have been used in various school systems. You can go look it up. Um, this is not mythology. This is not something that somebody created just to try to scare all the, all the parents out there about what your children are learning in school. This is an actual thing. Um, you can look it up. I first became aware about this. I heard about the usage of the gender-bred person um, in, uh, in a school system in Nebraska. Nebraska is a pretty conservative state overall, but as Al Mohler likes to say a lot, when you get close to cities, coast, or campuses, things tend to be more progressive. Um, it's just how life works, and so do with that what you will. And so it was a school system around um, Nebraska, University of Nebraska. And this is, this is out there. Uh, so this was one version of the gender-bred person, and a couple of things that we note here. Um, it's not it's no longer binary. Oops, that's not the one I wanted. I want this one. Um, so you have these, these different things. So you have your identity, attraction, sex, and then expression. And so you, you answer the questions, am I more masculine, more feminine, uh, based on these characteristics? And this helps you to determine your gender. All right, so that was, that was version, uh, one version of that. Here's a new version of the gender-bred person. And... Now, 
Um, one of the changes here is the biological sex um, has, has changed. Um, and we're gonna see another version of this still. So you have gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and sexual orientation, um, which they've broken that into, pulled that back into one category instead of two. And so you have these, and so basically what your job is then to help children understand and figure out their gender is you, you walk them through this and say, and you ask them a series of questions um, and to help them determine their gender. And this is how it's done. Um, remember when we separate these out that it's no longer tied to your biology, well then you have to help people. Well, what is it tied to? Well, here's some, here's some questions that you can ask yourself. Um, that one has actually been replaced in most circles now by this one here, it's called the gender unicorn. Uh, the gender unicorn, this one's interesting because it's now tapping into this idea of the unicorn, the, 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 uh, the uniqueness of the unicorn, you're just you. We call in sports when you have a, you know, a seven foot guy that can, he can, he's got, you know, he can dribble, he can shoot, he can do it all. They call him a unicorn because usually you're good at a thing and now you're a unicorn. So your gender is no longer a binary thing, and this is how it's getting taught. So a couple of interesting things. Uh, these stay the same, so your identity, um, your expression, how you choose to express yourself, and it's on a spectrum, so masculine, feminine, or other, and so we have non-binary, the rise of non-binary. Now notice this, it's no longer your biological sex even, it's sex assigned at birth. And so now it's just what your, pa your parents have done this. They just picked one for you. And it's further separating from biological reality. Um, your sex is being further pulled from biological reality. Uh, and so that's the newest version that I have seen at least. Uh, physically attracted to uh, men, women, or other, and then emotionally attracted to. So attraction is now broken down into two categories of physical and emotional. It's very interesting. Um, it's interesting watching the transition of one to the next. Um, now to see this gender unicorn. Uh, well, people that <clears throat> I don't I don't know exactly what they would say to that. Um, but people that don't find themselves at home with either gender completely, um, and that's the not. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So yeah, and you and you can be other on on any of these, um, you know, as far as your identity and expression. Uh, and this this is not immutable, uh, so it can change. Um, you could change, in theory, from day to day, uh, which one you choose to identify as. And so it's completely fluid. And this, this sounds so incredibly foreign to many of you, but you gotta understand, this is completely fluid. Um, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, they're firmly planted in midair. <laughs> like there, there is no, there's no grounding. Uh, there's no guy wire attaching you to reality. You don't need to be, because remember, you live completely in the upper story of this individual, uh, I, I am me, and there is no, there's no tying down to anything biological. And so you are the arbiter of justice, of gender. And so you gotta get that in your mind. This is, this is the expression. Uh, this, is, this is how uh, people are thinking about these things today. 
Yep. It already is. Yeah, so the question was, could, could there be eventually something like bestiality? Um, and, the, and the answer is yes. Whatever deviance you want to find, it is already out there. Um, so what, wherever your imagination would take you, and I hope not far down that track, but yes, um, it's already happening. Absolutely. Yep. It, it is, and it's almost... Uh, you know, I, I told you guys, I think, last week, I went and read, reread Alice in Wonderland, and I feel like I'm in the rabbit hole. Um, when I read some of this, and you'll say a sentence, and they say a sentence back, and you're like, I don't think I mentioned popcorn, but, like, why are we talking about this? And so you, you end up with these almost, because you're, you're, they're living in this, in this world that doesn't need to be tied down to reality or biology, and so once you completely disassociate that, well, now the binary is no longer binding. Um, and you, you just got to understand that that's how they're thinking. And so it's, I think you're right. Um, it is logical in that sense uh, they're, that they're following, you know, an ideology that's been laid out for them. And they've been trained in. They've been discipled to think this way. Yeah, Crystal. That's an interesting question. Um, so the question was, is there a primary driver of this? I don't know that I have an answer for that. Um, I think it's coming from every conceivable angle right now um, in, the, in society, in the world. We'll go Carl and then Adam. Yep. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's right. Yeah, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess my, I would think about your question, kind of my response, what's driving this kind of two different realms. There's a, there's a social answer to that, you know, healthcare, movies, entertainment industry. Um, I think, you know, the Instagram world, social media, things like that, as far as the practically why this is happening. Um, but I do think there's a much, much deeper theological root to that, that Adam's tapping into of why, why are we so determined to push back against God's design for us um, and our humanity. And I, I think that at its root is a rebellion against God and denial of his existence. Yeah, I, just, I, just, I think that's, that's why the numbers in reality, and I want you to have it in your yep. way, and I'll use it in my way. Yep. BK, have it your way. You rule. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yes. That, and we're seeing that, like, every day people are seeing that. So the LGBTQIA is sort of the latest iteration of, of this. Um, and I'll, I'll speak to each one of those in due time, maybe. <laughs> but the, the last one, the A, um, in, in some tellings of the story, uh, it's ally. So if you didn't find yourself in the first part, LGBTQIA is ally. I'm a friend of the movement. And you gotta be a friend of the movement or else you're, you're just a social pariah. You know, like you just, you don't fit in this world because you're not a friend of the movement. And so I think, I think there's a huge amount of social pressure. Okay, I wanna get back into the gender stuff. 
Um, specifically, uh, not that we haven't been talking about, but I want to talk about uh, gender as it relates to men and women, and I have a thesis that I want to argue for. I've shared this with some of you in different contexts, but I think it's worth repeating here. It's simply this. When we get gender wrong, women are disproportionately harmed, all right? And I just want you to think about that, and I want you to think about the situations that we're dealing with today, and you decide if that's correct or not. Women are disproportionately harmed. What do I mean by that? Uh, sports. You, you don't have a ton of female athletes that are trying to get in to fight with the men um, in things like MMA. There's a situation, there's one right now, a woman who's challenged, like any male challenger who wants to fight in the MMA ring, mixed martial arts. Um, I'm gonna go, go ahead and go on record as saying that's a bad idea, all right? It's a bad idea. Swimming, Riley Gaines has pushed this to the forefront um, most recently. Uh, she's a swimmer. Uh, she was an Olympic hopeful, um, very, and, and she was beat uh, by Leah Thomas, who transitioned uh, from male to female. Uh, so swimming has become a battleground uh, for this. Uh, there's uh, Alex and I talked a little bit about uh, your experience in the military, ranger training and operations, um, selective service. This is still a debate uh, going on. And so a few years ago when they opened up, um, they opened up combat positions to women, all right? Uh, opened up combat positions to women, which used to be uh, men only. And when they did that, people said, hey, that's inconsistent. So if you're gonna have equal opportunity, you have equal obligation as well. So we should open up selective service the draft pool, if there ever were a draft enacted, we should open that up to women as well, right? Because, hey, they're like Lego parts. Sub out a man, put in a woman. What's the difference? So they should all have equal obligation as well. And I think there's, you know, too many people that have grown up watching, you know, Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games and think, you know, women, we can go take over the world. Okay. I mean, Katniss was awesome, but like, most of the time, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna say that's probably not normative. All right? Can I? That was very gentle. Um, <laughs> it's not normative. That's not. That's not typical. We all know it. All right. We all know it. Um, it we know this is true. So, uh, military. This is going to be interesting because my my understanding, and I've, I've checked in on this issue a few times over the last few years. My understanding is this issue is still kind of tabled. Uh, that they haven't really like made a call yet because nobody wants to put their name on the bill because they got to face re-election, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, this is kind of tabled for now as far as I understand the selective service, uh, but it is logically inconsistent uh, to say you have equal opportunity, but you don't have equal obligation. Um, it's inconsistent and everybody knows it. Uh, in the California prison system, I, I picked up on this story. Uh, there's transgender inmates that are requesting new housing um, and transgender inmates who want to be housed, um, a, a male that's identifying as a female wants to be housed in a woman's prison. What could go wrong, right? What could possibly go wrong? It's a terrible idea. Um, we all know it's a terrible idea. So when we get gender wrong, women are disproportionately harmed. I think in some situations, um, different issues, but when you have overly chauvinistic styled leadership, you have abuse situations that crop up. When you don't get gender right, abuse is, it creates, um, creates situations for that. Marriage, when we get gender wrong, either in abdication or authoritarianism, um, when men get gender roles wrong, um, it harms women disproportionately. And then teens, I've talked about this a few times, 
But there was a recent CDC study, and I won't go into details on that. Uh, in 2021, 56% of our teens, our girls, feel persistent sadness and hopelessness, which is up 36% in 2011. So boys rose from 21% to 29%. So there's a, there's a rise in persistent feelings of hopelessness and sadness, but it's disproportionately, whatever's happening is disproportionately affecting our girls um, over the last 10 years. I don't think it's a coincidence that the smartphone was introduced in 2012, which is a, so this is like first decade of smartphone use, um, first generation that's grown up with that. I don't think that's coincidence at all. But my question is, why is it disproportionately affecting our girls? And I think that's, it's, it's worth exploring and thinking about. I don't have all the answers to that. We're not going to explore that too deeply. But just, just get my main thesis here this morning. When we get this wrong, women are disproportionately harmed. It's always the case. Um, it's just going to be the case. So I think we need to take a long, hard look at what the Bible actually says. So we're talking about gender, uh, talking about gender according to the culture. Now let's talk about gender according to the Bible. So there's a few things going on here in Genesis, and I'll just mention these. So you have this binary pattern in Genesis, which is worth noting and understanding, I believe. Uh, Greg Allison talks about this in his book, Embodied, and I found it really helpful. So you have this binary pattern uh, forming in Genesis. So you have nothing, and then you have something, you have light, and then you have dark, day and night. You have waters above, waters below, tree of life, tree of knowledge, good and evil, creator and creature. So you have this, this kind of pattern of the binary that's developing. You have dry land and waters, sort of opposites in one sense. You have work, and then you have rest. You have heaven, and you have earth. You have evening, and you have morning. You have sun and moon, good and evil. So there's this binary pattern that begins to develop um, here in Genesis. And then in the midst of this, you have the creation of man and woman. Um, And there's distinction uh, within that as well. And so in Genesis 1, what you have is an emphasis on equality, male and female, created in the image of God. In Genesis 2, I believe what you have is distinction forming up formed out of the man to be a helper for the man. And so I think you have a quality and distinction right there in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's, uh, Jesus talks about uh, male and female from the beginning. God has created male and female. So there's obviously a, a binary that was in play in the mind of Jesus as he was speaking to people. And of course, this wouldn't have been an issue necessarily uh, that would have been active in the day uh, for Jesus to address. He, of course, in the Bible, it does mention things like men that are wearing women's clothes uh, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, places like that, but there's never a mention of becoming a woman or a man, all right? So that's what's new about this whole conversation. There was, there was never, there, there's no indication that that was in the mind that you could actually be the other gender. You could perhaps in some sort of way, identifies the other gender. And then in something like a homosexual relationship, you can take the place of the other gender in a sexual encounter. Um, that is part of what Paul is getting at in Romans 1. So you have this, this binary, and you have these roles that begin to be established and understood. So we could say it this way. A man is a male bearer of God's image. A woman is a female bearer of God's image. Um, Again, equality yet distinction. I think both are very, very important. So that's gender um, in a nutshell, what we're looking at and talking about with that. Let's move into talking a little bit more about marriage. I think if you have no concept of a binary in gender, 
marriage really between a man and a woman is not going to make sense to you. It's a natural outflow. Um, it's interesting because in our culture, we've sort of gone the other direction with this. So we redefine marriage and then all of a sudden gender doesn't mean anything. Logically, you could say redefine gender and marriage doesn't mean what it used to, but it's kind of interchangeable, right? Um, the, the point is once you dissolve the binary, then the marriage no longer matters. But once you dissolve marriage, then gender doesn't matter anymore. All right, does that make sense? Hopefully, maybe. Okay, uh, so number of factors have influenced our contemporary view of marriage, rise of individualism. I've talked about that. Uh, gender roles, I think that's part of it. We'll see that in just a moment. Um, this idea of no-fault divorce, which, by the way, Ronald Reagan introduced <laughs> back in California as governor of California. Uh, Nancy was his second wife. And so you have this uh, rise of, um, of no-fault divorce. Um, marriage is no longer seen as something that's exclusive, monogamous, lifetime commitment, enduring. And then you also have contraception, uh, the rise of the pill, uh, where sex, sex, the act of sex, is now separated. And I, I've used sex mostly to mean um, biological reality, uh, just you, you are your sex. But in this context, we're talking about having sex, uh, sexual contact. And the rise of contraception, where the sexual act is no longer tightly linked to giving birth. Um, now you can have sexual activity, which doesn't result in, or even, even have the chance um, outside of, you know, small chances of the contraception not working. So marriage is no longer viewed as something that is exclusive, permanent, and oriented towards the common good. That's language that I picked up from Ryan T. Anderson in his book um, on marriage and gender and sexuality, and I find it helpful. So used to, and we could ask the question, why does a state even care about what marriage is? And this was a debate that we had, you know, back in the Obergefell days. The Obergefell decision was the, one, the decision that effectively legalized same-sex marriage uh, back in uh, 2015. And I say it effectively legalized. We know that the Supreme Court doesn't actually pass legislation, but their ruling effectively legalized it. Um, it was effectively legislating from the bench, as it were. So marriage is no longer viewed as something that's exclusive, permanent, and oriented towards common good, meaning children. That's why the state's interested in marriage, originally at least, um, because it provides stability for society moving forward, understanding the family as sort of this bottom line building block. Of what, uh, of what marriage and family is. Okay, so why can't Christians just get over it? Um, well, one of the reasons is marriage has been defined for us and we're not free to redefine it. So it's not up for discussion for Christians, what is marriage? Um, the Bible defines marriage. And so what we're calling on the state to do is to fall in line with what the Bible says marriage is, all right? So there's a consistent definition and it's interesting that when Jesus talks about this and when Paul talks about this, he doesn't talk about what some people like to pull up, the exceptions like polygamy of the Old Testament, which is problematic, let's just face it. Like, there's some weird things that happen there, leverate marriage and all of that, but they seem to be concessions and what we have is a consistent definition. When Jesus wants to talk about what is marriage, he pulls from Genesis. When Paul wants to talk about what is marriage, he pulls from Jesus who's pulling from Genesis and so you have this consistent definition. Um, of marriage. It's between a man and a woman. So Moses, um, who's author of Genesis, and then Jesus and ultimately Paul. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, so the notion of gender identity, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. 
it's not really mentioned in the Bible, identity. Remember, this is sort of a modern convention, the separation of gender from um, your, your physical, uh, the, the biology, what you are, your sex. Um, so it's not mentioned, it, there, there is certainly a mention of male and female, as we've already mentioned. So with that, um, moving into what it means then to be married, uh, we spoke about that a moment ago. Um, I want to I want to talk about what happened a little bit with the Obergefell decision, and we're talking about redefining this idea of gender and marriage, and how did this come about? Chief Justice Roberts says, you're not seeking to join the institution, you're seeking to change what the institution is, and I think that's fundamentally right. Um, You're actually seeking to change the institution um, on the whole, and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she had an interesting quote. This was actually a a different uh, case that she was speaking about, but it plays into this as well. Um, Her take was, gender roles have changed, which allows the role of marriage to change. Um, Here was her quote. Back in the old days, marriage was a relationship between the dominant breadwinning husband and the subordinate child-rearing wife. And so she says, with the egalitarian movement, the rise of feminism, first wave, second wave feminism, which were largely, especially in first wave feminism, that, that was sort of the suffrage movement in the 20s, um, bringing women, giving women the right to vote. We would say there was a lot of good fruit that was produced from original feminism, uh, the original feminist movement. Um, but now we're into the second, third wave, even fourth wave now feminism, which is a, a little bit of a fundamentally different thing than what was going on early on. So she's saying with the rise of this Women are now in the workforce. There's, uh, we've closed this gap on earnings. And so now you can redefine what marriage is because you're no longer going no to stick a woman um, into a relationship with just another woman and neither one of them can make a living, right? Um, and so now gender roles have shifted and so that allows us to redefine what this is, all right? So that argument at least makes sense. That was part of the argumentation here at the Supreme Court. So what does the Bible say about marriage? I'll just introduce these and we'll, we'll call it a day uh, for today and pick it up next week. Uh, marriage in the Bible. I think in order to understand what the Bible says, I think we have to get four things here. It's complementary, it's illustrative, it's exclusive and enduring. Complementary meaning I think you have a man and a woman and I do think you have marriage roles and, uh, with, and gender plays into that. It's illustrating something for us, it's illustrative, and that is the relationship between Christ and his church. And when you start to change what marriage is, you're actually changing the very illustration that God used in order to express his relationship with Christ and the church. Um, it's exclusive. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is exclusively, the, uh, we are exclusively his bride, and so it's an exclusive commitment, and it's an enduring one. Um, Jesus did not buy the church with his blood with a prenup. Um, it didn't work that way. Uh, so it is an enduring relationship as well. And I would say in order to get marriage right, according to the Bible, you, you really need all four of those pieces, um, according to the scriptures. Now, talking like that is going to make you maybe sound like a crazy person um, out there in the culture uh, because a lot of people don't agree with these um, anymore. But I think biblically, the, those four words sort of encapsulate uh, what we want to say about marriage. All right. I'll kick it open for maybe a question or two, or comment. I, I'll, we'll, we will start next time exploring these four 
Um, I do want to talk more about these, but that's kind of big level overview. Thoughts on that? All right. Yes, Diane. Right. Right. It's three. So, if you, it, she said a mother was excited that her three-year-old has decided they're a different gender. Um, right. And so that's what I'm saying. There's this social contagion. And again, I I said last week, it's not it's not crazy in the same sense that we would say it's crazy. It's logical, actually. It's operating within a worldview um, that they've been, they've been trained, uh, they've been trained in. And so that, that is, I think it's tragic. Um, I think it's tragic what's happening um, because they're growing up with this like, understanding of gender and sexuality that's completely divorced from what I would call reality. Um, it's completely divorced from that. It's all this individualism. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just I just think we got to learn we got to learn how they think. Um we get we need to understand this because that's why we're we're just crossing over each other um in these conversations sometimes. But I say that um I also want to say there comes a point in time when it's fine to look at someone and say that's wrong. All right. So don't hear me saying that you can't tell somebody they're wrong. I am saying that we need to understand a little bit about their perspective first though. Um, before you say that, it, I understand. I totally understand. But I think, I think both are necessary. Um, I tell my students in class sometimes, if you are having a conversation with somebody and you say, I have absolutely no idea why they would say that, then you probably shouldn't comment on it yet because you don't really understand what they're talking about. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, I think, I think we, we understand it and then it's fine to critique. Um, but, but we need to get that in order. And that's, that's what I'm trying to bring us along um, and do here. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right on that. And I, I think it's similar to the conversation we had last week about suicidality. Um, do, if, the, if the question is, would you rather this person transition or be dead? Like, well, I think the compassionate side of us should, should say, well, what we want to do is help. And I don't think those are the only two options. Um, and so I... I I can see that. Yep. That is the issue. That's the issue. And that's what we're trying to wrestle through here. Well, it's 10.01. I got to go. We, this could go for a while. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be compassionate and kind and also people with conviction.